If you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can find the book of Exodus, chapter 2, and the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 7. Both those passages, try to find them, stick something in the book of Acts, and we'll go there very quickly. We're talking about how God rules in our choices and even our poor choices. If the Bible that we believe in is the best interpreter of the Bible then no story illustrates that truth, that the Bible interprets the Bible like the one before us. And I'm going to try to illustrate that. In fact, uh, when we get to the book of Acts and read through that section, I count at least eight more than nuances, pieces of information, interpretive thoughts from Stephen as he preaches to these individuals who are about to stone him to death that we do not learn in the actual historical account of Moses. So... See if you can find some. We're talking about things that are happening inside of Moses, motivations that he has that are not recorded in Exodus chapter 2. With that in mind, let's go to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll pick it up where we left off in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way, And that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by the well. Now, for the interpretation of much of this, Acts chapter 7, and we're going to pick it up in verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And in the following day, he appeared to them, and as they were quarreling, he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him, that is, pushed Moses aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Nothing like the Bible interpreting the Bible, huh? Now, in spite of Moses' immaturity and even sinfulness, he shows flashes of what he would become later on in his life. And I want you to be encouraged by that. I mean, one of the first things you saw in the book of Acts, he's 40 years old. You didn't know that from the narrative. And he's just concluded the first 
trimester of his life. He's, he's in, he, he's, he's, he, the, Mo, the Bible talks about Moses for 40 years, then Moses for the next 40 years, and then Moses for the last 40 years. He lives to be 120 years old. D.L. Moody said this, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering that God, what God can do with anybody. Cool. Great quote. And then verse 11, and if you're back to Exodus chapter 2, says, one day when Moses has grown up, and if you've been with us, the verse before that, he's a baby in a basket being pulled out of the Nile. I don't know if you're like me. Are you the only, am, am, I, am I the only one frustrated by the fact we don't get the teenage years of any of these people? You don't get it in John the Baptist. You don't get it in Jesus. I can understand not getting it in Samson's life. I know this, if I write an autobiography, I'm skipping that part of my life too. Joking aside, 40 years is a long time. 40 years, that's 40 more years of oppression, of slavery, and death. If you're a Hebrew living during that time, you're crying out to God incessantly, praying, crying, oh God, where are you? Your parents perhaps have died at the hand of the whip, and you're wondering where God is. I thought of Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate Jewish man who wrote the little book Night and his experiences out of that book of, of growing up as a little one in Auschwitz and surviving it. And he tells a, 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 the story of a, three individuals who are being hung, and all the Jewish people were forced to watch them hang to die for just the most trivial things. And one of them was a little boy. And someone in the back said, where is God in all this? And somebody else said, he's right there hanging. That's an individual or individuals who have lost hope. Who could blame them? Some of you right now are in a place where you don't have a whole bunch of hope. You're not being whipped, but you do feel the lash of the consequences of your own sins. Some of you are feeling rejection. Some of you are just hurt. And some of you are just broken. You're, you have broken relationships. You have broken lives. Some of you have broken bodies and broken hearts. Where is God? Where's God in all of this? Allow me to go to the story here to give you some answers about God and what he's doing in your life and mine right now. Here's the first thing I want you to see. God is still working even if you don't see him doing so. In Egypt, God was still working during those 40 years behind the curtain, preparing a deliverer, Moses, the lesser Jesus. 40 years, and wait for it, there'll be another 40 years before Moses is unleashed to do what we know him to be most famous for doing. The other day, a tragedy occurred Someone very dear to us, a member of our church now having moved on, her sister died in her sleep, in her 30s, a couple of kids. 
I have a go-to passage that I go to, and I'd like to share it with you. It's Job expressing his experience. Here it is right here in Job 23. Here's Job going, Behold, I go forward, but he's God is not there, and backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me or tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Notice what I have purposely enlarged and underlined. That parenthetical thought, that prepositional phrase there, is you just run over the top of it, you don't even see it. I want you to see it. Because if you're on the backside of, the, of some desert right now, God is still working. And you need to know that and you need to believe it, even if you can't see it. Back to the interpretive passage in Acts chapter 7. Here's, a, here's, here's another thing that we see there that we don't see in the historical account. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, we're, we're not told that in the historical account. We know that Egypt was the most highly advanced society of that time in all kinds of academics, including chemistry and astrology and mummification, which we know about that. They were probably the first society to believe that the earth was round. And the Sun Temple was the Harvard of that day. That's where Moses went to school, highly educated, instructed. And here's another thing, again in Acts chapter 7, we don't know, we're told he was mighty in words and deeds. Did you see that when we read through it? Now we don't even know what that means. We don't really have, there's not a whole lot of history. You know, Egyptians don't like to write about the people that beat them. So there's not a whole lot in archaeology to tell us, or there's nothing virtually about Moses. But there is tradition that says he had won uh, an epic battle. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that the pharaoh of that time did not have any natural sons of his own. So the conjecture is that Moses stood to become the very next pharaoh. Remember that. It'll make a whole lot more sense and really turn on a passage in the book of Hebrews. When I came here over 20 years ago, I was not nearly as highly educated as Moses, but I, I did have an education coming in, in the school of hard knocks. 12 years, I'd led a church that put up with more stupid decisions and acts than I could count. I'd raised a few kids. Granted, they were still kids when I showed up here. I married a few, and I buried a few, and I lost a wife along the way. And made a lot of poor choices. Oh, by the way, I was 40 when I got here. As many of you discovered that were around back in those days, 40 and still capable of making lots of poor choices. Aren't you glad that God rules over even the poor decisions you make? Here's something else I want you to see. God sees things in you that you might not even see in yourself. And I want you to be encouraged by it. I don't care how old you are. I'm not just talking to teenagers or collegians. I'm not talking to young marriage. I'm talking to everyone here. God sees things in you that you don't even see in yourself if you're a true follower of his. Remember Gideon, Judges chapter 6? He's hiding during a time of oppression in the Midianites. He's, he's sifting wheat 
by himself so nobody can see it, so he can get his precious wheat. And along comes the angel of the Lord and announces by saying, Hail, mighty man of valor. (laughs) And Gideon's going, are you talking to me? Because he was acting like a scaredy cat. Well, we know he would become a mighty man of valor. But with that statement, God was telling Gideon, I see things in you you don't even see in yourself. And so it was with Moses. The seed of what would become a great shepherd was in him. Though crude, though immature, it was starting to come out. I mean, look at it. Verse 11. Again, I want to just, this is a key passage right here. It says that he went out to his people. See that? Rabbinical teaching claims that in doing so, Moses was identifying with his people's sufferings. Now listen, before Moses could lead his people out from Egypt, he had to go out to his people in Egypt. This is the seed of a, of a shepherd. Good shepherds are hands-on. They're not aloof. Pastors in the New Testament are called shepherds. They're called pastors. They're called overseers. Every one of those descriptions convey the idea of caring and seeing and knowing their sheep. Remember what Jesus said? I know my sheep and am known by them, right? John 10. And the word looked here in verse 11 where he grew up, went out to his people, and looked. You see, it's a really interesting Hebrew word. It's not the same word as the one that appears afterwards. This is the Hebrew word yara. This particular word means to, watch this, to look with emotion. It conveys the idea of intense personal involvement with the object of what is being seen. You can't help, if you know the New Testament, but to think of what Matthew tells us about Jesus, where seeing the multitudes, he had what? He had compassion on them, right? Here is Moses. He's young. He's restless. But early on, he's showing the stuff of a shepherd. He cares. I don't know where you're at in your walk with God, but let me tell you something. God sees stuff in you for his glory that you don't even see in yourself. But it'll never come out if you don't follow Jesus. Speaking of which, Moses is a type of Christ, a, that just a picture of Jesus. He is, sometimes we call him the lesser Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Quickly, let me share with you how. He left the glory of an Egyptian palace. Jesus left the glory of heaven's praise. Moses entered into the sufferings of his people in order to save them, which is exactly what Jesus did. Moses was rejected the first time. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own people, and his own people would not receive him. Right? John 1, 10 and 11. He took on a Gentile bride. Later on, he he goes to Midian, he marries Zipporah. She's not a Jew. He marries a Gentile. Aren't you glad Jesus married a Gentile bride? I am. 
Here's the fifth one. He came a second time to deliver Israel. And Jesus will come a second time to deliver Israel and us, praise the Lord. And there are more types, but that's just a handful I want to share with you as I move on to encourage you. Where is God in whatever you're going through and all of your struggles and all of your disappointments and your poor choices? That's what I want you to see. The third thing I want you to see is that God is able to rule over even your poor choices. Speaking of poor choices, Moses gets into a couple of fights here. The one we just alluded to. Later on, he gets into a fight with uh, when he flees. He goes to Midian. He comes by a well. And uh, here's uh, uh, the daughters of Ruel or Jethro are there. And, and these shepherds are harassing them. And Moses comes to their rescue. There are two fights in this thing. I, 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 I remember my senior year in high school. In my se- I wasn't a fighter, but in my senior year in high school, I got into two, not one, but two fights in about a month's period of time. Now, I won both of them. I didn't say that. It just, just happened to be. I just made good choices. Not really. They were bad choices. But the glory of my victories were quickly overshadowed by the ugly of my reputation as a fighter. Do you know what fighters draw? Other fighters, it's not a good place to be. Moses is in two fights here. In both fights, he's reactionary. In both fights, he wins. In both fights, he's the hero. But in the first one, he's out of control and pays for it by becoming a fugitive. In the second one, he's actually in control and is rewarded by becoming a father. He's growing, still a dense head, but he's growing. When I think about the young Moses, I I think about my favorite basketball, college basketball commentator of all time. If you're older, you might remember, do you remember Al McGuire, anybody? Billy Packer and Al McGuire. Al McGuire is the greatest basketball commentator of all time. He was funny. He knew basketball. He was entertaining. And whenever he saw a freshman do something boneheaded on the basketball court. He would, one of his lines was, one of his lines was uh, the best thing about, uh, about a freshman is they become sophomores. <laughs> Moses is a freshman. He's not even a sophomore yet. He's growing up outwardly, but not inwardly. He's certainly not an upperclassman, not yet anyway. And in fact, we can't just skip over verse 12. He looked. That's a different word, by the way. That's the word which means to turn, not the word to look with emotion. It just means to turn. He looked this way and that. Reminded me of when I was shoplifting. I was 12 years old in a department store. Got caught. I couldn't believe it because I looked everywhere. And nobody could see me stealing this candy until I can still remember feeling the hand of the cop on my on my shoulder, he says, you didn't look up. And up there, right near the ceiling, was a, was a glass partition. They were staring right down at me. Thinking about these things also reminded me just about the knowledge of God in your life and in mine. I was at a camp here a couple of weeks ago, and somebody I'd never met before said, hey, I heard about that story you told many years ago. I said, I haven't told that story in a long time. I said, well, I'm going to tell you now. It was Vacation Bible School many years ago. I only had a couple of kids at the time. And my son was too little to be in Vacation Bible School. 
Uh, and so, uh, but because this was such a little tiny church, we only had like 15 people in the whole VBS. And my son wanted to be in the closing program. So I said to him, I said, you can, you can be in it, but you need to be a good boy while you're up there. He goes, I will, I will. By the way, on the way to that closing ceremony, I said to my wife, I've got a little sermon I want to preach, but I just, I just need an illustration. I need something to sort of wrap it up and help to create some kind of an awe of God. So they're having their little thing at the end, and my son's up there, and in the middle of it, he starts playing army man. He literally crawls down the steps, and everybody starts laughing. So he crawls right back up again, and he crawls back down again. And I'm in the back just spitting nails. I can't believe he's doing this. And afterwards, he's kind of walking down like this. I grabbed him, and I pulled him out. Took him outside, just him, me, and the corn. And I let him have it. I said, you were an embarrassment. You were naughty. And I started giving him a spanking right there on the spot. And I looked up, and I looked in the foyer, and there was a deacon running through, waving his arms. I literally opened the door. I go, what do you need? He goes, Pastor, your microphone is on. <laughs> well, I got my illustration that day. Before I could give them an awe of God, I needed an awe of God. Everything I was saying, everything I was doing was coming through heaven's megaphone. And our congregations as well. Anyway. Do you notice what Moses did with the guy he killed? See what he did? He buried him. Why did he do that? Because that's what the flesh does. Buries, it hides things. You hiding anything? We got to see what Stephen's interpretation of this, this passage of Moses killing the Egyptian, interacting with the two Hebrews, fighting with one another. We got to see. We got to see what Stephen said again because this is this is like the fourth thing that I saw in Acts chapter seven that's not here. Here's what it says. I'll show it to you again. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by His hand, but they didn't understand. In fact, it goes on to say that he was trying to reconcile them. I mean, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? This is amazing to me. Somehow, God was already at work in the heart of Moses while he was still operating in the flesh. And to be honest, I don't pretend to understand how this stuff works. But I know that God is able to rule over even our poor choices, and aren't you glad? He doesn't excuse them. They still have to be confessed and forsaken. But he's bigger than those things, and be encouraged by that. Because in this passage, here he is thinking salvation would come by his hand. Moses here doesn't just picture Jesus and his goodness. He pictures you and me in our filth. Here we have him doing things his own way, looking this way, looking that way, not looking up. One could argue he's doing something good. The Egyptian was beating on a Hebrew. That was a, I mean, Moses stopped it. Wasn't that good? Wasn't it? You don't even know what to say, do you? 
It, it reminds me of what Paul said. You know what he said? When I look at all the things that I've done, all the righteous things I've done, I count them as what? Rubbish or dung. You know what dung is, right? We finally got a dog. For a week. I just gave it back. Babysat for one of our kids. Dog sat. It's not baby. Whatever. I really liked the dog. I mean, he's a good dog. He's, uh, he's, he's affectionate. He's obedient. But you know what dogs do a lot? Yeah. They poop a lot. And I used, to, I used to almost chuckle at people as they follow their dogs around with their plastic bags. Reminded of one of Seinfeld's uh, former, when he was young, telling the story of the, he, he said, you know, I, I, when, I, when I look at this stuff, he goes, I, env- I envision aliens zooming in on the earth. And that's the first thing they see. Somebody following their dog, picking up their poop. And Seinfeld goes, they must conclude, they'd have to conclude that the dogs are running things down here. Well, you know what you do with that stuff. You throw it away, right? Let's just say that you're, let's just take your yard, for instance, okay? You you know, you could just leave it. It would decompose over time, right? You might have to step in it a time or two between now and then. How often do you got to step in dog poop before you finally throw it away? Have you ever stepped in dog poop and didn't know you stepped in dog poop? You're having a cup of coffee with a friend and everybody's looking at you and you're wondering, where's this coming from? (laughs) And then there's all those unpleasant spots, bare spots. Nobody likes looking at those yards. Let's call the yard your life and the poop All the temporal stuff you love. Your reputation. Your job. Your money. Your possessions. Your your social status. Your religion. Your spirituality. For some of you, the very things that you treasure, all these things, things you think make you look nice, they're just dog poop. Both before God and those who... Take God seriously. And the only, the only people it looks nice to are fellow dog poop lovers. Frankly, some of us here have stepped in it. You're carrying it around with you, and you don't even know it until it dawns on you. You smell it, so to speak. And then you get rid of it. The Apostle Paul wrote that everything, even his religious pride of upbringing and passion for doing what was right, is dung compared to Christ. And what do you know? Moses thought the same thing. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't need the status anymore. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But aren't you glad that God rules over even the poopy things in our lives? Amen? Why did Pharaoh want to kill Moses? It wasn't just because he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. There are plenty of them. But that he sided with the hated Jews. 
The passage that follows says he took off, he runs to Midian. Where's Midian? I have no idea where Midian is. And by the way, scholars debate where some of these places are. Where's Midian? Where's Sinai? I mean, they, they're real. They exist. But it's just fascinating to me. People do dissertations on these things. But God has, in his wisdom, not allowed anybody to know for sure. They all conclude that they don't know. Well, some of them think they know, and just as, they're just as sure as the other person who says he knows. I like the individual who said, Bible writers are more interested in the what than the where. Because God's divine providence resurfaces again. Moses runs for his life, ends up in Midian. It's probably, it could be, if, if you think about the, uh, the, uh, the, the peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, you think of the Red Sea and the two branches that go off, it's probably just to the east. It's a very deserty area, Midian, it's a wilderness. We just don't know for sure. But Moses flees there and he finds a new home. He's got more growing up to do. If you look at verse 22, it tells us that he, he has a son from Zipporah, his wife. And he names his son Gershom, which literally means I am an alien in a foreign land. How'd you like to be named that? Apparently, Moses thought he'd blown it. It's all over. I had my one shot. I've messed it up. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. God isn't done with you yet. So don't you be done with God. No matter how, to what extent you've blown it, you've sinned, you've run, you're running from God. Some of you are running from God right now. He's still working. Come back to him. I remember in that little country church teaching on a Sunday night, just a handful of people were there. And out in this little tiny foyer was a, a woman, a godly woman, a soul-winning woman, a discipler of other women, and she was just weeping. Her 14-year-old had gone off the rails, having claimed to have trusted Christ, but she'd gone off the rails. She was in a very, very dark place, cutting herself. Her father caught her walking through cemeteries. And this woman was beside herself. And an older man came up to him, came up to her that, that day as I was looking back in the foyer. He put his arm around her. And he asked what was wrong. She told him. And he alluded to Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he won't depart from it. And the old man looked at her and said, is she old yet? And he walked away. And she would say that that four-word question lifted her soul. You know, it wouldn't be a year or two years or even five. It would be eight years before that daughter would come out of her darkness, walk with Jesus, and that was many years ago, and she's walking with Jesus to this day. Listen, God wasn't done with Moses, and he's not done with you either. He sees things in you that you don't even see in yourself. And yeah, he rules even over the poor choices of our lives. Give him the glory. The best way you can do that is by trusting the greater Moses, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who never failed, so that he could take upon himself all your failings and mine. And we could trust him as our Savior. Amen? God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Moses and for the story of the young Moses, impetuous, immature, sinful, operating his own flesh. And yet there you were, working off the seed that was there. Encourage us today, dear Lord, by the story of Moses and the greater one that he represented, our Lord Jesus. I pray for those in this room who don't know him. If that's you, dear friend, that you would repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. And I pray for you, dear friend, that you're listening online or you're here in this room and you're far from God. You're in your own personal wilderness. God's not done working with you. Turn back to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.